Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The Center for Disease Control estimates that approximately one quarter of patients with a pulmonary embolism will present with sudden cardiac arrest as the first symptom. The classification of submassive PE is associated with right ventricular dysfunction or myocardial ischemia in the absence of hypotension and requires prompt treatment with anticoagulation or thrombolysis to prevent decompensation. With that being said, thrombolysis is associated with significant risk for major hemorrhage or stroke. Dr. Cassie Schmidt, an emergency medicine pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, guides us through the treatment of thrombolytics, including assessment of patient-specific risks and benefits. In September of 2008, the U.S. Surgeon General declared a national public health emergency related to deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolisms. He enlisted a plan called CARE, which stood for Communication, Action, Research, and Education for the Prevention of DVTs and PEs. One major outcome of the CARE plan was the institution of DVT prophylaxis in hospitalized patients. This is something that we're all far too familiar with, as it's a part of our daily checklist as we evaluate patients. Now with the institution for DVT prophylaxis, the incidence of acute pulmonary embolisms has since declined. However, one thing that hasn't changed with pulmonary embolisms is the PE-associated death. In this image we see here is the age-adjusted mortality rate per 100,000 patients in the U.S. Mortality rates have slowly declined since the 1990s, but have remained fairly steady since the initiation of the Public Health Emergency Plan in 2008. Even more concerning here is the racial disparities shown between black men and women with higher rates of PE-related mortality over the general population. To further drive home these numbers, there's approximately 900,000 estimated DVT and PEs in the United States annually. If we look at the number of PE-related deaths, it's estimated that this is anywhere between 60,000 and 100,000 patients. With 25% of patients presenting with a PE, their first symptom is sudden death. And to further drive this number home, in 2020, St. Mary's Hospital saw nearly 100,000 inpatient admissions. Could you imagine if every patient we cared for within the walls of this hospital died of a pulmonary embolism? Now that I've introduced you to the mortality and risks associated with a PE, we will further classify PEs based on their definitions and risk stratifications. We'll then take a look at the literature to determine efficacy and safety outcomes for the use of thrombolytic agents in submassive PE, and I'll give you a hint as to why it's labeled controversial. We'll then use the literature to develop the ideal patient for thrombolytics that has a submassive PE. Take a look at this image on the left as you see a mobile thrombus transcending the inferior vena cava into the right atrium, right ventricle, until it slowly grows larger and lodges itself in the pulmonary artery. This is a pulmonary embolus. Symptoms of pulmonary embolism can include acute onset shortness of breath, chest pain, cough, 
and sometimes even hemoptysis. Treatment of patients with the PE, you have to consider their PE risk category, the patient's risk for decompensation, and balanced with their risk for bleeding, and then also contraindications to therapy. You've probably heard pulmonary embolisms referred to with a number of different verbs. So for risk stratification, we have the 2016 CHEST guidelines, and we use the words massive, submassive, and low risk to describe these PEs. However, the 2020 European Society of Cardiology guidelines uses slightly different verbiage, such as high, intermediate high risk, intermediate low risk, and low risk. Essentially for massive PEs, these patients are hemodynamically unstable and present with hypotension. They also typically have a PESI class of three through five, which I'll introduce further to you on the next few slides. And then they also have right ventricular dysfunction and positive cardiac troponins, indicating an obstruction in the pulmonary artery, as well as ongoing myocardial ischemia. For submassive PE, the difference here is that these patients are typically hemodynamically stable, so these patients are not hypotensive. However, they still will have a class, uh, a PESI score of three through five, as well as right ventricular dysfunction or cardiac troponins. For intermediate low risk versus intermediate high risk in the European guidelines, these patients, again, typically have an elevated PESI score, but may or may not have cardiac troponins and right ventricular dysfunction. And then last, our category of low risk. These patients typically don't present with any of these risk factors. These are the patients who may be receiving uh, imaging for other indications or surveillance imaging, and a PE is incidentally found on this imaging. For the remainder of this presentation, we'll be referring solely to the class of submassive PEs. So I briefly introduced to you the PESI score, which stands for the Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index. This is a clinical tool used to evaluate or estimate 30-day mortality in patients with a PE. It was retrospectively validated in approximately 15,000 patients worldwide, and these predictors were identified as predictors of increased mortality in patients with a PE. This includes age, so the older the patient, the higher the risk, male sex, cancer history or active cancer, heart failure, chronic lung disease, and then the following vital signs indicative, indicative of respiratory distress. As you add up the number of points, it's broken down into five categories from very low risk to very high risk. Patients that present with a PE in the low risk category may have a, an associated 30-day mortality of 1.7 to 3.5%. However, I would like to note that a limitation of the PESI score is that these categories are not finite. So a patient may present in a lower risk category and quickly decompensate into a higher risk category. And prompt recognition of this is pertinent to the patient's favorable outcome. We also had to have a simplified PESI score, also known as the S-PESI. This pulls out more sensitive uh, indicators for mortality in patients with the PE, and we, it's really useful in determining from the emergency department standpoint, can I send this patient home on oral anticoagulants and treat them with outpatient follow-up, or do they have a higher risk of mortality that requires inpatient hospital admission? So any patient that has any of the predictors highlighted in red typically is admitted to the hospital for inpatient treatment.
Other objective information that's collected on our patients and is useful in determining the patient's risk for decompensation. The first being cardiac troponins. Troponins indicate that there's ongoing myocardial ischemia and can be elevated for a number of reasons, specifically because we're having difficulty perfusing the heart because of this obstruction. Elevated troponins and submassive PEs have been associated with increased 30-day mortality, as well as PE-related mortality and serious adverse events. We also have elevated lactate, which is indicative of the need for anaerobic respiration because of poor perfusion. So in patients with a lactate greater than two, we've seen higher rates of all-cause death and submassive pulmonary embolisms, as well as increased death and deterioration. Last, we reevaluate patients' vital signs around the clock. Patients that have an elevated heart rate, but a low systolic pressure, we do become concerned for. This is known as a shock index, which is the quotient of heart rate divided by blood pressure. So if a patient is, has a heart rate greater than their systolic, that means their shock index is uh, greater than one. And as shock index increases, we get concerned for increasing uh, instability. Elevated shock rate has been associated with increased risk for 30-day mortality, as well as an increase in respiratory rate greater than 30 breaths per minute. Now that I've introduced you to the different classes of pulmonary embolisms and how we evaluate their severity, I'll introduce you here to the agents that we consider for treatment. Our first agent is heparin, which is an anticoagulant that prevents further clot propagation. It's FDA approved for all venous thromboembolisms and is dosed at a variety of different intensities, but for the dosing of a PE, we typically do an 80 unit per kilo bolus followed by a continuous infusion towards a goal anti-10A. Our other two agents are our thrombolytic agents, Altaplace and Tenecteplase. Altaplace came on the market first and has more FDA approved indications for ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, and pulmonary embolism. Dosing of Altaplace can range from 50 to 100 milligrams and is typically dosed based on the patient's weight. Our second agent, tenecteplase, may offer some benefits over altaplase. Because it has a longer half-life, we're able to give it as an IV bolus administration over just one to two minutes. Tenecteplase also has a higher uh, specificity for clot-bound plasminogen, and therefore should lower the risk for systemic bleeding with the use of tenecteplase. And the difference between our thrombolytic agents and our anticoagulant is that our thrombolytic agents actively work to break down fibrin and dissolve that clot. Tenecteplase is newer and so far only has FDA approval for myocardial infarction, but has been studied extensively in ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, as well as pulmonary embolism. And typical dosing seen here for tenecteplase ranges anywhere from 30 to 50 milligrams. Looking at our guidelines, we have the 2016 CHEST guidelines, as well as the 2019 European Society of Cardiology and the 2020 American Society of Hematology guidelines for the treatment of DVTs and PEs. I have massive PE listed here for comparison, where systemic thrombolysis is recommended or suggested in patients that have a PE and present with hypotension. As you can see here, the 2016 CHEST guidelines had a moderate recommendation with some uncertainty. But as we progress through 2019 and 2020, with more available literature, the strength of this recommendation has increased. 
In the patients with a submassive PE, systemic thrombolysis is generally recommended against as long as the patient is hemodynamically unstable. This was initially a class 1B recommendation from the CHEST guidelines, and with newer recommendations, we've slowly begun to lose confidence in this recommendation. The last thing we need to consider in a patient for thrombolysis is it whether or not they have any contraindications. The guidelines list out some major and some relative contraindications that we'll discuss. So for major contraindications, patients with known intracranial disease, such as cancer, and patients with known uh, previous intracranial hemorrhage, recent ischemic stroke within the last three months, uh, recent brain or spinal surgery, or recent traumatic brain injury, typically are contraindicated from receiving thrombolytic therapy. An additional list of relative contraindications include hypertension as a systolic blood pressure greater than 180 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 110, simultaneous therapeutic anticoagulation, diabetic retinopathy or different vascular diseases, elderly age over the age of 75, as well as a weight less than 60 kilograms. And then a last relative contraindication is patients that have had an ischemic stroke greater than three months ago. I would like to note with these contraindications, these are primarily extrapolated from ischemic stroke literature as this is where thrombolytics have most extensively been studied. Now that we've talked a little bit about our agents, I'll introduce you to the great debate. The arguments for thrombolysis include thrombolysis lowering the risk for decompensation. Thrombolysis may lower the risk for chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And thrombolysis may improve mortality. On the flip side, the arguments against thrombolysis include that heparin alone is sufficient for the treatment of submassive PE. Also, patients with submassive PE do not require aggressive treatment. And last, thrombolysis is associated with increased risk of major bleeding complications. As we look through the literature, I hope to answer some of these myths and facts about lytics and submassive PE. Before we begin, you get an urgent page to come down to the emergency department and evaluate a patient for thrombolysis. She's a 60-year-old female who presents to the ED with acute onset shortness of breath and chest pain. Her initial workup identifies a past medical history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, hypertension, and migraines. Her initial vitals on arrival include a heart rate of 110 beats per minute that's slightly tachycardic. She is also slightly tachypneic at 26, and for the time being, she is normotensive at 108 over 76 for her blood pressure. Her labs indicated, indicate an elevated troponin of 36, an elevated lactate of 2.2, and a D-dimer of 1447. Because of her chest pain, we grab an EKG, which identifies sinus tachycardia with a T-wave abnormality. However, it does not have uh, ST elevations or ST depressions concerning for acute coronary syndromes. So we send her off to the CT scanner for a triple scan. When you get a phone call from the radiologist, indicating that the patient has bilateral segmental pulmonary embolisms with associated, associated right ventricle strain. So let's take a moment and calculate our patient's PESI score. She's 60 years old, so she'll get 60 points for her age. She also has chronic lung disease where she gets 10 points, and she's tachycardic at 110 beats per minute where she gets an additional 20 points. This puts her into the intermediate risk category based on the PESI score with an associated 30-day mortality of 3.2 to 7.1%. Looking at 
looking at her SPESI score, she does have two points, again, for chronic lung disease and tachycardia, which indicates that she warrants inpatient treatment. Now, I do want to note that the simplified PESI score is not a finite rule for inpatient versus outpatient treatment. And regardless of our simplified PESI score, this patient still warrants inpatient treatment. So I'd like to just briefly bring you back to the case, uh, take a moment to take a look at it, and then I'm going to ask you to identify the patient's pulmonary embolism risk stratification. So if you can either pull out your phone or your computer and go to pollev.com forward slash MayoRx, and we'll go ahead and give you guys a moment to get into the poll everywhere, and then we'll go ahead and ask this question. Our first question is, how would you classify CS's pulmonary embolism based on the 2016 CHEST guidelines? And again, I'll give you guys a few moments to think about it and respond. All right, in the interest of time, I'll go ahead and go through the answers. Our first answer, A, low risk. I would say that this patient is not a low risk PE because she has RV strain, positive troponins, and an elevated PESI score. I'll skip down to C and say that this patient does not have a massive PE as she is not currently hemodynamically unstable. And for D, intermediate low risk, this is a terminology used only by the 2020 European Society of Cardiology guidelines and would therefore not be the correct answer. However, we would call her intermediate high risk because she does have the RV dysfunction and positive troponins. Therefore, submassive PE is the correct answer. Now let's keep our patient CS in the back of our minds as we take a look at the thrombolysis literature for submassive PE. The first two trials that I'll introduce to you today are the MAPIT trial and the PITHO trial. The MAPIT trial looks at alteplase and heparin in patients with a submassive PE. Then we have the PITHO trial, which also looks at tenecteplase rather than alteplase and heparin and submassive PE as well. For exclusion criteria, the MAPIT trial excluded patients that were over the age of 80, as well as patients with neurological events within the last six months. They also excluded patients that were on oral anticoagulation at baseline. Looking at the PITHO trial, here we see no age cutoff or specific exclusion for neuro neurological events. So that it did not have the same exclusion criteria that was seen in the MAPIT trial. The patient population for MAPIT was about 50% male with an average age of 60 years. These patients also had significant known vascular diseases such as coronary artery disease or diabetes. In the PITHO trial, again, we have about 50% males. However, the average age in the PITHO trial is a whole decade older. So these patients were about 70 years old because we didn't specifically exclude based on age. One notable factor as well is that there, there were patients that were allowed into the PITHO trial that did have recent trauma. Both of the MAPIT and the PITHO trial were randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials with an inter intervention arm of thrombolytic plus heparin. So in the MAPIT trial, we have TPA and heparin, and then the uh, placebo-controlled arm is placebo and heparin. Total patient population here was about uh, 250 patients, and uh, patients that received alteplase received a dose of a 10 milligram IV bolus followed by a 90 milligram IV infusion over two hours. As far as heparin dosing goes, heparin was given as a 5,000 unit IV bolus followed by 1,000 units per hour. 
One thing I do want to note for this trial and the remainder of our trials is that heparin was given either prior to, um, prior to randomization or right at the time of randomization. So therefore, these parent patients were therapeutically anticoagulated at the time of thrombolysis. Looking at our pytho trial, we have a similar study design with tenecteplase and heparin as our interventional arm and placebo and heparin as our control group. Total, there was about 1,000 patients enrolled in this trial. Dosing for tenecteplase was weight-based by increments of 10 kilograms and was given as IV bolus from 30 to 50 milligrams. It does not provide a lot of information in regards to heparin dosing, but it was bolused as standard and given as a continuous infusion with a goal APT, APTT of two to two and a half times the baseline. Outcomes between the MAPIT trial and the PYTHO trial were very similar. So the MAPIT trial reports death and deterioration at seven days as the primary outcome. Here, deterioration was defined as the need for cardiopulmonary resuscitation, intubation, the need for vasopressors, or the need for rescue thrombolytics. Here we can see a significant difference in the patients that received alteplase, as only 11% of patients achieved the primary outcome. This is significantly less than the nearly 25% of patients that received heparin alone that had death or deterioration. This was so significant, actually, that the uh, study researchers terminated the trial early at the interim analysis because it seemed unethical to continue withholding thrombolytics uh, from patients in the heparin control arm. Looking next at our need for rescue thrombolysis, we see fewer patients getting rescue thrombolysis in the alteplase arm, which makes sense. Once we give one dose of alteplase, theoretically, they shouldn't need a second dose. However, the patients that get heparin may decompensate further and then require additional thrombolysis. Next, we have major bleeding, which in the MAPIT trial was defined as life-threatening bleeding or a drop in hemoglobin of four points or more. Here we see only one patient reporting major bleeding in the alteplase group versus five in the heparin group. We also report the incidence of hemorrhagic stroke, which was zero across the board for both TPA and heparin. They did report one ischemic stroke in the TPA group, however. And in looking at the PYTHO trial, we see a similar pattern for our primary outcomes. There is an absolute reduction in the primary outcome of 3% in those patients that received tenecteplase. Here, the definition of deterioration was a little more restrictive compared to the MAPIT trial. So de deterioration here were patients that required vasopressors for hypotension or cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which likely leads to why we see such smaller numbers in the PIPO trial. Next, the need for rescue thrombolysis. Here we see fewer patients receiving a second dose of uh, thrombolysis with tenecteplase in the tenecteplase arm, which again is unsurprising. And we see nearly 23 patients or about 5% of patients in the heparin arm that did receive tenecteplase. One thing I do wanna note in the major bleeding group is here we see a big difference. So 11.5% of patients that received tenecteplase did experience a major bleed. Major bleeding, however, was defined as life-threatening bleeding, symptomatic bleeding, or a drop in hemoglobin of at least two points or more. So this definition of bleeding here is a lot less restrictive than it was in the MAPIT trial. So overall, 11.5% of patients that received tenecteplase had an episode of major bleeding, which is significantly higher than the 2.4% of patients that received heparin. Unfortunately, the PYTHO trial also did report an increase in the number of hemorrhagic strokes. 
Overall, there were 10 hemorrhagic strokes in the tenecteplase arm, equating to 2% of the patient population, and one hemorrhagic stroke equating to 0.2% of the population. We'll discuss these outcomes a little bit deeper. The Python trial does a good job of breaking down the primary outcome into different subgroups. Here we have a forest plot indicating death and deterioration, or their primary outcome. It's dichotomized based on age as well as the patient's sex. And here we see that they all trend towards favoring tenecteplase. However, patients that were less than 75 years of age was the only group that favored tenecteplase, which was significant. Another interesting thing to note is the total number of deaths that occurred. In the tenecteplase arm, there were six deaths out of the 13 in the primary outcome. This means the remainder of patients achieved the primary outcome because of decompensation. Looking at the placebo arm uh, that received heparin, we saw nine deaths out of the 28 patients. This means the remainder of the patients experienced decompensation as well. So overall, we can say that the primary outcome here is really driven by the prevention of decompensation rather than the prevention of mortality. Another thing to note here is the number of patients that experienced a mortality because of a hemorrhagic stroke. So four of the six deaths in the tenecteplase group that, uh, that received tenecteplase and died were due to a hemorrhagic stroke, and all four of these patients were older than the age of 75. And so that's one thing to consider is that there were no, de there were no deaths related to uh, major bleeding in the MAPA trial, but again, their patient population was a whole decade younger. Another secondary outcome, which we have not yet discussed, is major extracranial bleeding. So here we still see a significant increase in the number of extracranial bleeds of 6.3% in the tenecteplase group versus 1.2% in the placebo group. Again, this is statistically significant and does not seem to have any differences when dichotomized by age or sex. So based on age or sex, placebo was better in preventing major extracranial bleeding. One thing I would like to note, though, is that, again, all of these patients received unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparin, or fondaparinox prior to administration of a thrombolytic agent. It's important to note that the use of full-dose anticoagulation typically precludes the administration of a thrombolytic agent in other indications. So patients with an ischemic stroke on an oral anticoagulant or a low molecular weight heparin at baseline typically do not receive thrombolytic agents. It's a little less unclear for myocardial infarctions, but again, we typically use reduced doses of heparin in those patients receiving a thrombolytic agent. The PITHO trial was actually addended at the very beginning to include a long-term follow-up. Patients were followed up for a median of 37.8 months, and some even up to as far as five years. Based on the Kaplan-Meier curve's survival curve that we see here, there was no overall difference in mortality between those that received tenecteplase and those that didn't. Overall mortality was 20.3% versus 18% in the placebo arm. The PITHO trial also sought to determine whether or not patients that received tenecteplase had lower incidences of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. They did this by self-reported uh, patients self-reporting the incidence of dyspnea persisting uh, up to two years. They also reported New York Heart Association class three or four, as well as the mean pulmonary artery pressure at follow-up. Here we see no difference in these chronic thromboembolic uh, suggestions for pulmonary hypertension between tenecteplase and placebo.
So overall conclusions we can draw from these two trials is that alteplase and tenecteplase reduce the risk for deterioration. No definite mortality benefit has been seen also with alteplase or tenecteplase. And then last, tenecteplase has increased the major has increased the risk for major bleeding and hemorrhagic stroke, but it may be limited by confounding factors such as patient population or simultaneous anticoagulation. This leaves me with the question of do thrombolytics and anticoagulation given together, are they associated with the higher risk of bleeding? So what if we reduce the dose of the thrombolytic agent since anticoagulation is still the standard of care in pulmonary embolism treatment? The next trial we have is the Moffitt trial, which draws into reduced dose TPA. Reducing the dose of the thrombolytic agent is tied to a theory called route attrition. Route attrition is essentially the idea that the lungs is the sole organ in the body that receives 100% of the blood's volume as the blood travels through the lungs to be perfused and delivered to other parts of the body. Therefore, theoretically, 100% of the dose of the drug that we administer should also travel through the site of the occlusion in the lungs. This is different when we treat uh, embolisms in other areas such as the heart or the brain where only 20 to 25 percent of the blood volume travels to the brain and therefore would require higher doses to achieve the same systemic concentration at the site of action. So the Moffitt trial looked at reduced dose TPA in moderate pulmonary embolisms. Here a moderate pulmonary embolism was defined as a PE of significant volume on CT imaging but these patients were not we're not required to have a positive cardiac troponin or uh, also right ventricular dysfunction. So it's likely these moderate PEs may have been a combination of low risk and submassive PEs. Exclusion criteria for the Moffitt trial also included the incidence of hypotension or massive PEs, neurological events within the last year, and neurological events within the last year. Overall, the patient population was about 50% male with an age of about 58 years. So this looks pretty similar to that of our MAPIT trial. There were two arms in this study as it was a uh, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And in the first arm, the intervention arm, we, we see alteplase at a total dose of 50 milligrams. So it was, it was bolused at 10 milligrams, followed by an infusion of 40 milligrams over two hours. And our control arm, again, was patients receiving placebo and heparin simultaneously. Mean follow-up for these patients occurred for up to 28 months. Overall outcomes of the MAPA trial include the primary outcome of the change in pulmonary artery systolic pressure. So they recorded pulmonary artery systolic pressure using transthoracic echocardiography on admission as well as at 48 hours following randomization. Here we can see that alteplase or TPA 50 milligrams was associated with a greater reduction in the pulmonary artery systolic pressure. And for orientation, pulmonary artery pressure is elevated during the acute PE as the uh, pulmonary embolism is occluding the pulmonary artery and therefore causing acute pulmonary hypertension. In a normal patient, these numbers may be as low as less than 20. When comparing this to our placebo arm, we see a reduction of about 10 millimeters of mercury in those that received heparin alone. This would suggest that heparin as the sole agent has a slower reduction in pulmonary artery systolic pressure as it does not actively degrade the clot. The 
secondary outcomes from this trial include pulmonary hypertension, which was self-reported by patients. It was found to be 16% in the Alteplase group versus 57% in the placebo group. Recurrent PE was also lower in those that received Alteplase, as well as total mortality. Overall, hospital length of stay in days was shorter in those patients that received Alteplase, likely due to the fact that patients were on a heparin drip for longer. This study also reports no, no uh, patients experiencing major bleeding. So before we draw any conclusions, I'd like to ask you, how would you treat CS's submassive pulmonary embolism? So we've talked so far about full-dose alteplase and tenecteplase, half-dose alteplase, as well as just the standard of care heparin alone. So please go back to pollev.com forward slash mayorx to submit your answer. All right. In the interest of time, we'll go ahead and go through the answers. So I would like to say that there's not an, a correct or an incorrect answer here. This is really based on how you interpret the literature and what your comfortability is in administering these agents. Heparin would not be wrong as this is a high intensity heparin drip and a standard of care, at least here at Mayo Clinic, for the treatment of a submassive PE. I would also say that reduced dose alteplase at a total dose of 50 milligrams with heparin is a good, good answer choice. However, with reduced dose alteplase, we really don't have any patient-centered outcomes yet as the data, the literature only reports a change in pulmonary artery pressure. Next, with tenecteplase, again, I would say that this is not a wrong answer. We do have literature to support its use, and I would say that it should be used carefully in patients uh, with lower risk of bleeding. And then last, we have alteplase full dose for a total dose of 100 milligrams with heparin. And I would say this is not an incorrect answer, but we do, again, have other data to suggest that maybe we don't need doses this high. So overall, some conclusions we can draw from the reduced dose alteplase study is that half-dose alteplase is effective at reducing the pulmonary artery systolic pressure, more so when compared to heparin. However, I would say that this trial is limited in its external validity based on the heterogeneous PE definition of moderate PE and the lack of a patient-centered primary outcome. It's also unclear if thrombolytics reduce the incidence of pulmonary hypertension at long-term follow-up, as this smaller study contradicted the results of the PITHO follow-up study that had nearly 1,000 patients. So the next question I ask is, what about patients at high risk for decompensation that may or may not have contraindications for systemic thrombolysis? This is where we'll begin to talk about catheter-directed thrombolysis. Catheter-directed thrombolysis is an interventional procedure where a radiologist will go in with either one or two catheters, depending on the size of the PE, and essentially insert them in the pulmonary artery at the site of the occlusion. There's really two different types that can be done using uh, the first being a Cook catheter that has little holes on the side of the catheter and slowly releases our thrombolytic agent. We also have uh, ultrasonic-assisted catheters called an ECOS catheter, which delivers vibrations to help further break up that clot, along with their thrombolytic agent. So here I'll introduce you to the PERFECT and Seattle 2 trials. The PERFECT trial was a combination of massive and submassive PE patients undergoing catheter-directed therapy. They excluded patients that were younger than 18 years old, or also specifically, patients that had known pulmonary malignancy. 
Our patient population, again, is pretty standard compared to our other trials, and it was about three-quarters of patients with a submassive pulmonary embolism. This is very comparable to our Seattle 2 trial, which again uh, included patients with massive and submassive PEs. However, their exclusion criteria is a little bit different. They excluded patients that failed to achieve an RV to LV ratio that was greater than 0.9. So patients with an RV to LV ratio less than 0.9 were excluded. Now this isn't something we've discussed so far, but the right ventricle to left ventricle ratio is essentially that if the right ventricle is larger than the left ventricle, that would be indicative of uh, pulmonary hypertension as well as uh, acute heart strain from the PE. They also excluded patients that had neurological events within the last year. And their overall patient population, again, is very comparable to the patients we've studied in other trials. For study design in these two trials, they were both single-arm, open-label studies where patients received catheter-directed thrombolysis and uh, concomitant anticoagulation. Anti For the perfect trial, there were two different types of catheters used, both uh, the Cook catheter and the Egros catheter. However, we're not going to discuss these differences today, as we're mainly focusing on outcomes related to thrombolysis. Alteplase was administered through the catheter at a rate of 0.5 to 1.0 milligrams per hour, typically given over about 24, 12 to 24 hours. A few patients also did receive urokinase as well. And then patients also received anti-therapeutic anticoagulation with heparin. However, it was reduced to a rate of 3 to 500 units IV per hour during the catheter-directed thrombolysis since this was extended over a period of about 24 hours. Following the end of thrombolysis and catheter removal, these patients were then put back on high-intensity heparin. The Seattle 2 trial has a similar study design, as well as alteplase and heparin dosing. However, this trial uh, only used one specific catheter and was less of a comparison of different types of catheters. Overall, for primary outcome, both the per PERFECT trial and Seattle 2 trials report the change in pulmonary artery systolic pressure. Again, this is from randomization to 48 hours. And we see really no difference in the change in pulmonary artery pressure between the two trials. But even more importantly, as this is similar to the change in pulmonary artery pressure that was seen in our reduced dose alteplase study. Both studies also report 30-day major bleeding, and the PERFECT trial reports no patients experience, experiencing major bleeding. The study investigators hypothesized the reason for no major bleeding was the reduction in the heparin rate to 3 to 500 units per hour rather than doing full systemic anticoagulation. The Seattle 2 trial did not reduce the dose of heparin and was, had an associated 30-day major bleeding incidence of about 10%. Overall length of stay between the two trials was about 8 to 9 days. But again, these trials are only single-arm studies, so it's difficult to draw any conclusions as to how these, um, how these perform compared to other arms. Overall conclusions from catheter-directed therapy is that data surrounding catheter-directed therapy is limited to these single-arm trials and does not have a clearly defined place in therapy. Catheter-directed therapy is also an invasive procedure associated with the increased cost and increased hospital length of stay. If you remember from our reduced-dose alteplase study, those patients had an average of about 2.2 days for hospital length of stay. So if this is effective in reducing pulmonary artery pressure, what about using low-dose peripheral thrombolytics over an extended period of time? 
While we don't have any data regarding this yet, there are studies in process looking at peripheral administration of Alteplase as 24 milligrams over 12 hours versus catheter-directed therapy of Alteplase 24 milligrams over 12 hours. And I'm unsure of any studies comparing peripheral low-dose TPA to recurrent 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams of TPA, but again, that is something that I think would be worth studying and interesting to report. All right, it is time for our last Poll Everywhere question. Now that I've introduced you to the treatment of a pulmonary submassive embolism, let's go ahead and identify which patient you think would be the most, most likely to benefit from receiving a thrombolytic agent. All right, we'll go ahead and go through the answers now. I'll start with the answer choice B, our 56-year-old male with a past medical history of ischemic stroke in February of 2021. So his ischemic stroke happened about six months ago, which technically is a relative contraindication to thrombolysis. However, it's something I would consider, but it does not quite rule him out for receiving thrombolysis. Next, our 80-year-old female with baseline COPD and no contraindications to systemic thrombolysis. I would say that she would not be a candidate given her age, as so far we've shown in studies that patients over the age of 75 may be at an increased risk for bleeding. Next, a 49-year-old male that is therapeutically anticoagulated with a pixaban for atrial fibrillation. Again, I would typically not consider thrombolysis in this patient as the use of oral anticoagulation at baseline has not been studied in thrombolysis for pulmonary embolism. This leaves answer choice A, our 37-year-old female who is hemodynamically stable with a lactate of 3.1. I would say that she would be the most ideal candidate for thrombolysis because she's young and likely to tolerate thrombolysis well. She also does not have any major or relative contraindications that I've given to you at this point and she's at risk for decompensation given her elevated lactate. Some additional patient considerations that I would consider thrombolysis if these patients have these considerations present. This would be severe RV dysfunction, so patients with a very elevated RV to LV ratio, patients that have severe persistent hypoxemia, regardless, or not regardless, despite the uh, application of supplemental oxygen. So if we put them on uh, O2 and they continue to remain hypoxic, regardless of the rate of the oxygen, I would be concerned for decompensation. Further, for number three, high risk for decompensation, these all kind of factor into how stable do I think this patient is and do I think whether or not they're gonna become unstable. Four, large clot burden is a consideration and is typically seen on CT imaging. And then last and most important, we need to outweigh the patient's risk for death with the risk for bleeding. I have this listed here, and it's studies of thrombolytic agents that we discussed today for the three different indications that they're typically used, stroke, pulmonary embolism, and myocardial infarction. I'm not gonna go through it in detail in the interest of time, but I would just like to note that this includes both alteplase and tenecteplase. And overall, the rate of major bleeding looks to be about four, uh, to like 6%, and then the rate of hemorrhagic stroke is anywhere from about 6 to 9%, including alteplase and tenecteplase, but however, has been reported to be zero in studies for both major bleeding and hemorrhagic stroke. Lastly, we're going to balance the risk versus benefit of using this thrombolytic agent. 
here we see for all-cause mortality that the number needed to treat is fairly small for both patients that are less than 65 and greater than 65. The more concerning thing here is the number needed to harm. For patients that are younger than 65 years of age, the number needed to harm is 176. For patients that are older than 65, this number needed to harm is only 11. So this means that every 11 patients that you treat over the age of 65 will experience a major bleeding event, uh, one patient for every 11. Further balancing the risk versus benefit, I have here a forced plot from a meta-analysis indicating the risk of death. Overall, we see that all of the thrombolytic trials in submassive PE do favor thrombolysis. However, it's very close. It's a very close balance between thrombolysis and anticoagulation. Now it's time to circle back to our great debate. For thrombolysis, we've confirmed that thrombolysis lowers the risk for decompensation. However, we have not shown statistically or significantly that thrombolysis lowers the risk for pulmonary hypertension long-term. We've also have not shown that thrombolysis improves mortality. And the arguments against thrombolysis, heparin alone is, we have not shown that heparin alone is sufficient for the treatment of submassive PE, and we have not shown that patients with submassive PE do not require aggressive treatment. However, we have seen an increased risk, for thromb increased risk of major bleeding complications in patients that receive thrombolysis. In summary, thrombolysis in submassive PE remains to be controversial with a lack of identified mortality benefit. Simultaneous anticoagulation and thrombolysis practices should be re-evaluated as it's not typically done for other indications. And we really have no data supporting the time to anticoagulation in our submassive PE patients. And finally, ideal dosing of thrombolytics for submassive PE is not well established as it's really based off dosing for our other indications. And based on route attrition, we should not need doses that high. My final recommendation, thinking back to our patient and the following considerations, I would actually give her tenecteplase weight-based dosing, IV push over one to two minutes, followed then by systemic anticoagulation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Music